Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm joined again by Andrew Lipinski and Matt Bianco. How are y'all doing today? Wonderful. Really glad to be here today. Me too. Thanks for being here. Uh, we are picking up where we left off with book two of Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. So let's just dive right in. First thing that struck me in, in this one, this book, is that she does almost all of the speaking lady philosophy. Like, mm. Boethius responds, yeah. Just a, like a few lines, and then she, it's mostly her, her giving, and, and as she says, a rhetorical argument. So she moves from from dialectic to, to rhetoric here for a little bit. I think that's something for us to pay attention to, that I want to pay attention to, because th- this is all preparatory, she says, right? This is the softer medicine to prepare him for the harder medicine. Right. And so I'm curious if in Lady Philosophy's mind, rhetoric is a kind of... Um, well, I'm going to steal a technical term from Plato or from the Greeks, but a propydeutic. It's uh, it's preparatory. It prepares you for the next oh, stage. Yeah. And so is rhetoric actually a propydeutic that then opens the door to what? Dialectic? To whatever? I don't know. Um, yeah. Is it? Huh. Because she brings in soothing music at the same time. Like she brings the muse back in too, right? Like to go along with it. Yeah. And I'm thinking now almost all of Socrates' dialogues are with people who are already trained in rhetoric. Like he's speaking to almost specifically to rhetoric. Oh, interesting. Right? Right. Like in his dialogues, it's all people who are orators of some kind, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, that kind of throws things all out of uh, whack, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but I'm still comes before dialectic. We didn't have a summary or a narration before we got going. Oh, you're right. You're right. I I failed on the narration. Oh, but you know what? You win the prize, Andrea. You can give the you can give the narration for book two. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll try. Um, well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> think uh, I found book two interesting because she says that. Uh, his problem is that he's longing for his former good fortune. And so the treatment she's going to provide is rhetoric and music. Um, And the root of that problem of longing for his former good fortune is that um, he thought that his fortune had, that he thought that fortune, capital F fortune had changed toward him because he didn't understand fortune's true nature. And then she talks about what who who fortune really is. Uh, inconsistency is her essence, is her nature. Um, she talks about uh, tells him to stop thinking about himself as uh, as being miserable because misery passes away. That some would even say he was the luckiest man alive, um, and that the measure the memory of any happiness is enough. I thought that was fascinating. And then she goes through. I think am I getting this timing right? Yeah, then she starts going through the things that could have been fortune. Um, is it gold? Is it power? Um, and all I could hear when I was reading like the fifth poem is that where your treasure is there, your heart is also. Because uh, hmm. she's asking him, you know, questions, perhaps it's this, perhaps it's that, perhaps it's this. And so by the sixth one, she shows him that it's not power that he wants. It's not wealth was the fifth it's not power and the seventh one it's not fame 
Um, and then we get to the eighth. And just I, I I thought the eighth poem was more of a summary. Um, and I'm I'm curious at the end of this one, like where are we going next? Um, because she says, I'm hardly able to put it into words. Oh. But she tells us that good fortune deceives us and bad fortune is actually honest with us. And um, we can see it rightly and we can see ourselves rightly within it. And so I thought that was fascinating. So, yeah. That's all I got, Brandon. Yeah, no, it, interesting because it's interesting because that last poem verse mm -hmm. uh, ends with this kind of focus on love, like, but yeah. capital L incarnate love. Um, yeah. And like that almost like that's the only thing worth worrying about losing and you can't you can't lose it basically um but that 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 idea of love ruling came up in our conversations uh in ovid with with alec and, mm -hmm. and katarina so um even talking about like in, the, in the underworld with orpheus and eurydice so um I, i'm i'm really curious to see where she goes with that too in the next in the next pieces here um but those last couple lines were just you know oh happy race of men if love who rules the sky could rule your hearts as well but that's just kind of a parting shot in this section so we're, we're, we're left on a cliff here that's what i'm saying like i'm really interested at this point what where well he hasn't really responded at all in this whole section right. very much and so we're really left with okay what's his what's how's he going to respond to all of this rhetoric mm -hmm. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because one of the times he does respond, he says something like, well, I didn't want good fortune for its own sake. I wanted good fortune yeah. to be able to exercise virtue. Right. And and then she's like, ah, yes, the last of the uh, illnesses that needs to be overcome. <laughs> um, and then she's like, yeah, you wanted it for fame. You wanted it for the notoriety that comes with doing all those good things. And uh Man, I just remember like, I just remember uh, times in my own life, you know, where it's like, oh man, if I just had a million dollars, I would do this and this and this. And then because, you know, I'm a, I'm a wise, virtuous, you know, Christian man, I, um, the, all the stuff that I would do is always like super, it's always super pious, pious and yeah. virtuous and charitable. And it's like, oh, I would help build this church or I would, you know, give this money to these people, these poor people, or I would pay off these people's debt or whatever. And it's like, and yet God never gives me the million dollars. So maybe, uh, maybe I'm lying to myself and I wouldn't actually do all those good things with it. Or I'm not doing those good things for the sake of the good things i'm doing those i'm wanting to do those good things for the sake of the fame the, right the, the the notoriety that come with it like like i really really felt his his uh his circumstances in that moment right in that part of the text i'm like oh man i am boethius good night <laughs> it was, yeah, i was nuts yeah <laughs> it cut, cut 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 a little too close to home <laughs> hit a little too close to home yeah. cut to the quick yeah, because she says the one thing that could entice minds endowed with natural excellence, though not yet perfected with the finishing touch of complete virtue, yeah. the desire for glory, thought of being famed for the noblest of services to the state. So Boethius certain few few are willing to to render the service and the virtue without without any uh, recognition, right? Which is tough because we talk about proper yeah. honor and proper, you know, we should you know, right. um, 
I think it's there. I think it's, I don't know, like maybe from the person who has the ability to confer honor, there's the, there's the directive to pay their workmen as wages and honor those who are, are honorable. But from the perspective of the person who's being called to be virtuous, you're supposed to not care about that at the same time, which is, right. you know, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. That's, it is. And, but it's a, it's the exact right distinction, you know, in the, in the, in the scriptures, in the new Testament, when Paul's talking about, you know, honor and pride and, all of that stuff, right? It's when he's talking to the givers of honors, he's commanding them to give honor to whom honors do. But when he's talking to the recipients of it, he's saying, you don't need, you don't need honor from other men. You just need honor from God. And that's it, you know? And, um, and then what we do is classical educators, parents, teachers, whatever, right? Is we hear, we hear the command that the person doesn't shouldn't need honor from men, but needs honor from God. And then as the givers of it, we're like, well, I'm not going to give it because they should just get it from God. Right. Right. And we forget that he's commanded us to, to give honor to whom honor is due, you know? So we can, conf we confuse the categories there and then we mess it up. And, um, it's an important That's distinction, I think for in, in this book and in, in just life generally. I feel like you, so whether it's giving honor or in the way she talks about money, um, she says, when, when riches are shared among many, it's inevitable that they impoverish those from whom they pass. Right. However, when you speak, your whole voice fills the ears of many hearers to an equal extent. So like our words can reach many and they don't deplete us when we give mm -hmm. in the same way of giving oh, right. riches does. So we talk about giving yeah. honor. Yeah, that's the comparison she makes. And so there's a scarcity to physical wealth that doesn't exist when it comes to wisdom, to the sharing of wisdom. And yet we we let that scarcity deceive us into thinking that the one's more valuable than the other. Yeah. Huh. She's so smart. She's wise. She's philosophical. <laughs> well. Okay, but so when you, you shared earlier, Brandon, about how she says the finishing touch of complete virtue is the desire of glory, then she gives a, a visual, I feel like, example of that. And she talks about how if we look at the whole cosmos, the the earth that we're on is a point within it. It's so small in comparison. And then she says, well, hold on, look at that earth now and figure out the amount of it where people, the humans actually live is so small in comparison the whole of earth so that's the point within the point right so she said this is the tiny point within a point shut in and hedged out in which you think of spreading your fame and extending your renown like in that itty bitty spot you're trying to spread your renown like i love yeah. that visual like, yeah how small can she make us you're you're not yeah. you're not even a speck within this point within the point yeah yeah, and that, and that's the that's the you know again we mentioned last call last um, discussion but in book one about the parallels to Socrates and Plato that's kind of the point remember when we did Alcibiades one a couple months right. ago a few months yeah. ago the same kind of point right like you think you're something because you're better than these guys in Athens but have you ever put yourself up against the Spartan king have you ever put yourself up against the Persian king you know and right there's like a total lack of perspective. 
Yeah. And and then on top of which, it might not even it might not even be good if you have fame in those other lands because they may not regard what you're famous for as a good thing because they may have a different cultural huh. norm, right? Like yeah. they may yeah. view you as some kind of threat. Yeah, I loved that section. For, first of all, I thought of Alcibiades one. Um, I loved how she like goes so far to showing how insignificant it is, mm-hmm. and then completely unrelated to the specific to this text. But but related to the world we live in now, I love that this is this is a early this is what I think like third or fourth century he's writing. Is that right? I think it's and then I mean, he's talking about the Ptolemaic version of the universe. So mm-hmm. an earth centric version of the universe, quote unquote. Yeah. But even in that earth centric, mm-hmm. like we think that I think we have this envision of they made the earth more bigger and more important than it was because they put it in the center of the moving things. Mm-hmm. But that's because our concept has the biggest thing in the middle, the sun, right? <laughs> you know, or, or at least our solar system. And so, but they don't like she's she's talking about how in the cosmos, the earth, especially the surface where the part we live on is super small. So even in, in that, it just kind of upsets some of that, uh, our kind of judgment yeah. of their silly, their silly, their silly <laughs> systems. But so I loved it for on all kind of levels, but that was such a great section. The um, I think one of the things that kind of stood out to me in this was the couple of places where she points out to him the value of ill fortune, yeah, um, or the thing that you want to know but you can't know when you have good fortune. Um, so she says on um. It's right before song eight. So prose section eight. Um, She says, Again, should it be esteemed a trifling boon, thinkest thou, that this cruel, this odious fortune hath discovered to thee the hearts of thy faithful friends, that other hid from thee, other fortune, the good fortune, right, that the other hid from thee, alike the faces of the true friends and of the false but in departing she good fortune hath taken away her friends and left thee thine what price wouldst thou not have given for this service in the fullness of thy prosperity when thou seemest to thyself fortunate and it's like i mean this is like a common theme i mean in movies and you know stories and stuff right like rich or famous or help powerful or wealthy people like they don't know who who their true friends are right, right. and that and that this is a like what price would thou not have given to be able to distinguish your true friends from your false friends or your true friends from your from your good fortune friends from good fortunes friends um and just a reminder that like you know this now like ill fortune has given you this as a gift yeah um but there was something else too earlier. I think even before she introduces the good fortune, ill fortune distinction, where she says the, where she 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 points out this idea that that a good thing has come to you, like some good is coming to you because fortune has the wheel has turned. You know, now, there's a, there were a couple of times where she points that out, and it's uh it's interesting how when we we don't have that stuff and we don't have wealth, power, fortune, fame, whatever, then we want it. And we think it's going to be some sort of, it's just going to make life easier, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, 
but then when but the people who do have it they realize like they realize what is lacking like even the knowledge of who your true friends are is lacking for those people it's interesting i like that the false friends she she labels as fortune friends of fortune like Friend, they yeah. go they go with her right yeah. Like that's who their their only truly friendship is to wherever fortune happens to be at the moment. Yeah. That was an interesting way to picture that. There's, there's another um parallel. It's not quite as it's not quite as um obvious, maybe, but there's another parallel to Plato here because Plato Socrates makes the point in several dialogues that it is better to suffer injustice. Right than it is to commit it mm -hmm. it is better to be punished for committing an injustice than it is to go unpunished you know he makes those kinds of arguments and it seems to there seems to be a parallel here right with like the good that ill fortune does even if that ill fortune is unjustified uh, which of course just fortune doesn't justify mm -hmm. we we do but fortune never justifies her her favors <laughs> Yeah, I like her uh, simile here. She says um, something that so that fortune does, and bad fortune in particular, is it sobers you, prepares you to make wise, to be made wise by the experience of her own adversity. Uh, this adverse fortune frequently draws men back to their true good, like a shepherdess with her crook. Huh. Yeah. yeah. That's what adversity does. Because right in the beginning, she said, you don't know yourself. But adversity draws you back to your true good. There was something along those lines, too. Um, oh, kind of the flip side of that, I guess. She says um, in, in, in prose section six, wealth cannot extinguish insatiable greed, nor has power ever made him master of himself whom vicious lusts kept bound in indissoluble fetters. Dignity conferred on the wicked not only fails to make them worthy, but contrarily reveals and displays their unworthiness. And before that, she's talking about how music makes men musical, the healing art, physicians, rhetoric, public speakers. Each of these has naturally its own proper working, and there is no confusion with the effects of contrary things. Mm-hmm. Even of itself, it rejects what is incompatible. Music does. The healing art. Rhetoric does, right? But wealth does not. Hmm. Wealth cannot extinguish and chase insatiable greed. It just drives it all the further, right? Yeah. It brings about the very thing that every other art rejects that's negative, it's contrary. Wealth does not. Power does not. Wealth and power attract the contrary. All right, so on mine, right after that, I'm, I think I'm in the same spot as you. She's for mine. I'm going to grab what you shared. I'm going to keep going. Mine says that riches are unable to quench insatiable greed. Power does not make a man master of himself if he is imprisoned by the indissoluble chains of wicked lusts. And when high office is bestowed on unworthy men, so far from making them worthy, it only betrays them and reveals their unworthiness. But then this is the part I wanted to, to ask about. The reason for this right? Dun, 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 dun. Is that you are accustomed to using the wrong words to refer to things which are by nature otherwise and are easily proved to be so by their very operation. 
I'm not sure I understand that. The next line, she says, so neither riches, power, nor high office can properly be called by these words. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I had to re- read that a couple of times as well. I was trying to figure out what she was referring to. I'm assuming that she's saying that we call riches, or how I read it ultimately is that she we call riches and fame uh, virtue or honors or intrinsically good, good and good we call yeah. them good okay but but they aren't we're calling or, them or, or or maybe even that we call riches riches when they're not actually riches and we call power power that's not actually power and we call dignity dignity which is not actually dignity or high office as you guys you're yeah, yeah. so because <clears throat> that that might explain a little bit or that might be kind of drawing the conclusion from what was read what you you I think you mentioned it during your summary, Andrea, but where he says, um, money is only precious when it is given away, and by being transferred to others ceases to be one's own. Mm-hmm. Again, if all the money in the world were heaped up in one man's possession, all others would be made poor. Sound fills the ears of many at the same time without being broken into parts, but your riches cannot pass to many without being lessened in the process. And when this happens, they must needs impoverish those whom they leave. How poor and cramped a thing then is riches, which more than one cannot possess as, as an unbroken whole, which falls not to any one man's lot without the impoverishment of everyone else. But that, that, I, I think that might be the same thing, right? Riches, so that, that explains the richest part, but the same thing is true of power, right? If I have power, I'm necessarily right. taking it from other people. Mm-hmm. And if they have power, it's necessarily limiting mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then dignity, I think dignity... In the sense of giving somebody honor is not necessarily true, but dignity in the sense of high offices, right? There's a there's a scarcity to high offices that so maybe your translation might be the better there. I don't know. So maybe that that's true in like if if we're talking about if we're using riches to refer to uh, gold, wealth of gold, yeah, and we're using power to to refer to the ability to make other people do something, mm-hmm. right? Then we're calling the wrong thing riches and power, mm-hmm. and that properly speaking, riches would be something that, when shared, multiplies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like the speaking of virtue, mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. and and even power would be something that, when shared, multiplies, mm-hmm. right? So, true power is being able to empower others, not 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 boss them around, I mean, for lack of a better term, right? Maybe that's what what's yeah, or self control power over like the ability to control myself, right? Right, right, order my own self, right? Rather than thinking about power as something that I exercise over other people, right? I should be thinking of power as something I exercise over myself. And when I control Mm -hmm. myself, I'm not, I might, the effects of my power have nothing have no effect on anybody else's power, right? I think that's true. I think, I think, I think focus internally, it's that it's that ability to control oneself. I was, I was thinking, uh, in the context of like. When God, when Christ shares his power out through whoever, mm. angels, us, saints, you know, whatever, the, that power isn't diminished in Christ. It's, it's, it's just going through other th- things, right? Yeah. So if I can do, if I can mirror that in some way, if I do have some role of power, some, some ability to, uh, or some access to power that I'm using in a way that shares it so other people can 
make their own decisions, govern themselves, right? Better govern themselves, right? In some way. Um, that's maybe what it should look like or what we should be referring to as real power. Mm-hmm. She starts this, the, she starts this whole idea of um, it being greedy and insatiable all the way back in the verse, the verse part of, of two, the, the second song. So she sets it up early on in her argument and then kind of, which is, which is a good lesson in rhetoric, right? She kind of sets that up poetically in the song early on. Um, no, I mean, it ends with no man is rich who shakes and groans convinced that he needs, that he needs more. Yeah. But um, all through there, it's talking about, you know, opens every time you rapacious greed soon swallows all and opens other gaping mouths, it just becomes hungrier, hungrier. Yeah. Um, so she's she's teed that up before she kind of brings the hammer down toward the end on that stuff. So, okay, if I could back us up from there uh, in the prose part, just above that, uh, she says, "When you were a little boy, you must have heard Homer's story of the two jars standing in God's house, the one full of evil and the other of good." And it's uh, quoted in a Penguin translation of the Iliad, Book Twenty Four. Are you too familiar with that? Yes, but mine doesn't tell it say that it's from Homer. Why does your translator give you so many hints? Okay, you have to figure it out, huh? It's, I uh, just remember that he tells the story of the two jars in the um, Zeus, right? Pouring out blessings or curses. Yeah, but now I can't remember. Is it the Iliad or Odyssey? Which Iliad. Is it? Iliad, it's Iliad, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then, and but then I remember partly the reason I remember is because Socrates critiques that story as part of the reason why Homer needs to be banished from the city and the Republic, because that's a false view of it's a, it's a, it's not what, what God would really do. So it can't be true. It can't be true. So she quotes know. it obviously as, yeah, th- this is a thing. Right. So that's where I was getting confused. Cause then she questions him and says, well, now you have had more than your share of the good, but have I completely deserted you? Well, that's, Okay, that's that's interesting because that's actually fortune speaking. Yeah, she's speaking for fortune. Like she's making oh, that's right. That's what she's fortune. using Fortune's voice. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So Fortune might say something like Fortune, who is capricious, might accuse the gods of pouring things or saying it's not me, it's the you know, the gods do it, and I'm kind of one with I'm yeah. kind of do what they do. Yeah, mine says you're the one who drew over liberally from the good jar. That's oh, funny. Wow. Over liberally from the good jar. There we go. Now you have a tummy ache. (laughs) What if this very mutability of mine is a just ground for hoping better things? Yeah, that was, I underlined that line. But then, like, like, that's good, right? Because that's, I mean, that's Fortune's argument, right? But then she says... She being Lady Philosophy says where we were before, um, the, the last line in prose six, right before you get to the song, she says, for she, Fortune, neither always joins herself to the good, which that which we need to remember, right? Because good things happen to good people and bad people, and we can't assume that somebody's good just because they have fortune. Good fortune. Um nor does she make good men of those to whom she is united. But 
in that line in in prose two, she says, "What if this very mutability of mine is a just ground for hoping better things?" Right. Is she trying to make some sort of promise? I mean, she's not saying the. She's just asking a question, a rhetorical question, right? But mm-hmm. is she in some way trying to hint that keep following me and good things might come? But then Lady Philosophy is like, no, she doesn't make good people good. Right. <laughs> that is not. Actually, she says she says it more explicitly. She says um, right before that in the beginning of pro six she says honor cometh not to virtue from rank and rank is something that fortune gives you virtue is something philosophy gives you right honor cometh not to virtue from rank but to rank from virtue from the virtue you can go to a rank you get you get rank because of virtue not virtue because from your rank right right and lady fortune is promised is her promise seems to be connected to you'll get virtue from rank. And Lady Philosophy's argument is no, 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 you get rank from virtue. Yeah. And if you're given rank without virtue, all it does is expose your because she goes on to talk about how that all it does is expose your your shortcomings. Your yeah. Your, mm. your yeah, where your, your unworthiness. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Like if you give you dignity to the unworthy, all it does is expose their unworthiness, right? <laughs> The the whole idea of this book being so heavily focused on on fortune on late fortune mm-hmm. is really I found really I I forgotten about that having read it just the one time and yeah. to me it's um you know we talked a little bit last week about you know this comes before and probably influences Dante and comes after and draws on a lot from from Plato Socrates. But this idea of fortune and fortune's wheel is 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 an idea of the ancients, primarily the you know the pagans. Um, you don't, or at least I don't know of it as much in explicitly talked about, like in 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 pre-Christian Jewish literature or anything. But um, but I found it fascinating how like he uh, Dante touches on it, but not not as heavily, I don't think, and so he seems to really be or they seem to be really wrestling through kind of that marriage with the christian ethic and and view of the world um with lady philosophy i mean but then again lady philosophy is also as an interlocutor is obviously a drawing from from that pagan tradition as well so i find this a really interesting book earlier on in the medieval period basically like the very front end of it i would i guess where those things are being wrestled through and i think this this book is uh, lays that out so well, um, like the arguments of what what fortune actually does. Um, he, I, you get a lot of Job vibes with this whole with the whole book, but certainly in this in this section, yeah. um, that that, that really oh, kind of comes out. Uh, I was thinking when you were talking, I was thinking about Ecclesiastes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But Job too, right? Like it would be a really, really great. Um, like if say, say somebody had a course on the great ideas and you, but you made fortune, one of the great ideas, right? Yeah. Um, and then you had readings from Job, from Ecclesiastes, from, uh, Boethius here, yeah. Constellation of Philosophy. Like there's right. There's three really great readings on this idea of, uh, a fortune. Right. 
I, I was thinking too, even before that, in um, Paul's letter to the Hebrews. Well, I, I'm, I think Paul wrote the letters to the Hebrews, but I guess it doesn't really matter. To some unnamed author's anonymous <laughs> author's letter to the Hebrews, um, the uh, I think it's there he where he's talking about how the Lord. Lord, you know, God chastises those whom he loves. He chastises his children and that, and then those who are not his children, he does not chastise. Um, and, and that, that, you know, here she's calling it ill, she's calling it ill fortune, right? But ill fortune oftentimes draws men back to true good, uh, which would be kind of a, a divine, a divine chastisement, right? To, mm-hmm. that it's intended to, draw us back to the true good. Um, I don't know if she would equate ill fortune with divine chastisement, but there's some sense of that in, in Hebrews, right? So I, I wonder how much, if there is to that kind of earlier Christian and Judeo Christian uh, stuff, you know, how much, how much overlap or how much this is a, is a, is kind of a, of a, of uh, explaining the, Christ, the Judeo-Christian views through this kind of pagan lens, right? As the al- using the pagan lens as an allegory to to explain those Christian ideas. I mean, you, should, you can flesh that out, Brandon. That's interesting. Well, yeah, I think that's that is interesting because I didn't think about it that way, but I've heard other people talk about other parts of the, particularly the Old Testament. As being written as a in in response to the surrounding cultures, right? So, like the Genesis story yeah. is a correction of these kind of um, pagan stories of the lesser god overthrowing the, the the tyrannical over god. You know, whether it's whether it's Zeus and the you know, and um, Kronos and those kind, of, but that they have these they have these false versions of a father son god relationship all around them and that and the yeah. creation of the world and that genesis is written down to be it to be a correct a corrective to the to the to the false narrative of of reality that's all around them so it, it'd be it'd be interesting if if there's some something to that that some if some of the if if job's narrative if um and then later hebrews and are continued to be in ecclesiastes continue to be a response to the pagan interpretation around around them it's interesting because i was just reading a book this is a couple months ago but i was reading a book on biblical criticism and the uh the author of the book contended that as this one is an a hebrew response to um What's the poem? It's like Elish Inud or something. It's like a hymn to Marduk hmm. about the creation of the world from the perspective that that perspective of the Assyrians or Babylonians or whoever it was, um, and the and so it's it's responding to that. He, this guy was arguing. Well, he wasn't really arguing. He was just declaring. But <laughs> that's besides the point. And then he declared that chapter two of Genesis is a Hebrew response to the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is oh. interesting because we're yeah. reading that soon, right, on on right. Overdue Classics. So we ought to maybe, not to mess up your schedule, Brandon, but maybe we ought to sneak in a week there where we um, 
where one of the call, you know, after we finished the Epic of Gilgamesh, yeah, do yeah. we do a, one more call on the, or we just make it part of the Q and A, you know, uh, where yeah. we just read Genesis two and discuss it in light of that. But we've got a little wiggle room, so we'll maybe play around with that. Yeah, that's interesting because one and two are all, we often think of them as like being repetitive. You know, what I mean that the story of creation yeah. repeats there in Genesis almost, but if they're right. if it's repeating the same narrative as corrected to two to two particular false narratives, that would make a lot of sense. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, yeah. I don't know enough yeah. about biblical criticism to know if he's right or not, but it's an interesting thing thing to think about. Huh? Fascinating. It, it was the only part of that book that was interesting to me, to be quite honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you get sometimes you got you get one good nugget, and you got to write a bunch of other filler so you can publish something. <laughs> Biblical criticism is a little too analytical for me, but when he starts comparing it to, you know, these, these old yeah. ancient poems, then I'm like, oh, okay, now we're doing, now we're doing something that's interesting to me. That's right. I like it. Um, yeah, so I think, I think obviously, Boethius is doing the same thing that Dante does later, right? Putting himself into the story. He's both the writer and the character of the story. Mm -hmm. Um. And dealing with a real life situation that they were both in, both being in exile. And they both needed a mentor or somebody else, right? Who knew right. more. And then, I, so like you guys were just talking about Ecclesiastes, Job, and Boethius and seeing the similarities there about how they all deal with fortune. I was thinking of Dante, Boethius, and Augustine in Confessions. Mm. He gets sent to Bishop Ambrose and finds that he needed him more yeah. than he knew. Yeah. Right? Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, those are the that's what I was thinking of when I read this book. Yeah, yeah and they both and they both have to basically imagine up their interlocutor, right? Dante and Dante and Boethius, but yeah. it's someone that they're they choose someone that they're intimately familiar with, right? Right. Dante, as a poet, picks Virgil, mm -hmm. right? His favorite poet. So he's mm -hmm. intimately he's intimately familiar with Don, with Virgil's work and and life and all those kind of things, mm -hmm. and Boethius picks Lady Philosophy as a student. It seems like more of a student of philosophy because he seems to know philosophy. Plato and Zeno and Socrates. Like all, and he seems to know their stories and their and their philosophy um, well. Mm -hmm. And so he chooses one. That you can almost have. certainly read Confessions as a Socratic dialogue between Augustine and God, right? Except God doesn't answer explicitly, right? Augustine's soul answers on behalf of God. Right, but, right, right. Um, yeah, it's certainly a dialectic there too. Just you just don't get an explicit appearance from God in the uh, in it's, the text the way you do Lady Philosophy, right? Yeah, or, we don't. Uh, what's her face? And I think we don't think of anyone doing this after Plato writes it down for us of Socrates. But in reality, there's a lot of texts that read this way and a more and the most recent one that i know of is that ethics of beauty reads that way it takes a little while to get used to it because we're not used to it anymore as moderns but it's a modern text where he he writes it with a an interlocutor mm. to, to flesh out the ideas he's talking about um and so yeah augustine has another one where he it's a dialogue between him and his son about teaching mm. That's really good, but and that's not, that one's more explicit, right? It's an actual back and forth between father right. and son. It's good. Okay, so one of the things that I liked about this text too, kind uh -huh. of the middle, is um, is where she kind of helps to identify what is real wealth is, like not just wisdom either, but like 
you think you've lost everything, but you have a, you have a, a godly virtuous father-in-law right. who even now is safe and healthy and whole. You have a virtuous, faithful wife who even now, as sad as she is because your absence is still healthy and virtuous and faithful, you know, um, and he kind yes. of, kind of, and then his sons too. He talks about the son, yeah. the Prior. sons, right? Being faithful, ha- yeah, having having themselves a good play, you know, being in a good, being good sons who are faithful to their father and their grandfather, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of like again shifting his perspective, right? Where you know he thinks his fortunes are bound up in which city he lives in, which house he lives in, which offices he has, and how much wealth and how many books he owns. And she's trying to help him to see like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not your wealth. Your wealth is your wisdom and your virtue. But even, but even in addition to that, from a physical perspective, it's your, your father-in-law, your mother, your son, or your wife, your sons, you know. And they're all considered virtuous by lady philosophy themselves. And they're suffering on his behalf. Like he has virtuous people who are suffering for him because they regard him so highly themselves mm. even, if oh, the rest right. of the society, even if the rest of society that's rejected him doesn't right so the virtuous people yeah. his family are the virtuous ones in the society and they still hold him in high regard mm-hmm. so the people whose opinion yeah. matters he still he still has good opinion yeah. it's almost like he's lost the honor from fortune's friends but that honor is worthless anyway right this she goes on to talk about later <laughs> but he has the honor of people who matter yeah it's a good reminder for all mm-hmm. of us too i think now yeah. whose honor whose honor we're getting matters yeah well so it's in the middle of this book where she says um the time has come for something rather stronger right at the beginning of the fifth song and so i i could you know she starts him off gentle but the, the fifth song is when she and what i heard in that one was where your treasure is there your heart is also right though um she's not going to quote scripture um but that's when the she p- pulls those things out that you know wealth actually harms its owners that um, blessings are inferior things. All these things that you just listed, Matt, are inferior things to the humans, the relationships you have in your life. Um, and that's part of her stronger treatment is to pull these things out. So, mm. Yeah. Oh, so reminding him of those, those, the value of those relationships is part of the stronger medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. This is okay, not, this is not the gentle that's medicine. Good. This is a stronger yeah, medicine to that's see good. rightly what's in front of you. That's really good. She just stepped it up, right? She went, she just stepped up the, that's the point where she starts stepping up a little bit. Yeah. So then, then she pulls all those out. And I mean, she, you know, she says, a, perhaps your eyes are attracted to these precious stones that reflect the light, but they are of inferior rank to you as a more excellent creature and cannot in any way merit your admiration. Perhaps you find pleasure in the beauty of the countryside, but you are in fact enraptured with empty joys, embracing blessings that are alien to you as if they were your own. Perhaps like she just goes back and forth, right? And she gets very specific. Um, perhaps you've thought of this, but it's actually this. 
So she gets stronger come the middle of the book. Um, and that's when she gets to, but but wealth very often does harm its owners. Um, so I, I think I, I put here that this is kind of a summary of it. She says, not one of those things which you count among your blessings is in fact any blessing of your own at all. Um, when you account your most worthless of objects as good of yours, you make yourself lower than those very things. Like that's huge. When I account the stuff around me as a blessing, I'm putting myself as worth less than them. Like talking about rightly ordering ourselves, that you know, having that as a, a form of power, as a more proper form of power. I had not thought of it like that. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, hold on. There was something you just reminded me of something. Is this the? I'm not sure exactly where you are. So maybe this is what you, this is just my translation of what you just read. I'm not sure. True is it? So true is it that nothing is wretched, but thinking makes it so. Hmm. And conversely, every lot is happy if born with equanimity. Which is interesting, because um, there's okay. So part of that line is there's an allusion to that perhaps in Hamlet. Or Hamlet says something. I think he says like nothing is true except thinking makes it so, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And and usually, usually people point to that line and say, "Well, see, Shakespeare was a relativist, and there's no such thing as the true." But I remember reading an article one time where somebody was like, "That line converted her to Christianity," um, but I don't really remember, really remember how. But now he's saying it here. And there's this this idea, right? Like even even in, in Paul's point in Hebrews about about accepting chastisement as as meaning that God loves me and is wants the best for me, right? Is a way of persuading me to receive that chastisement with gratitude. When negative things happen to me, I need to be grateful for it because God is or ill fortune or whatever, somebody's giving me a gift from which I can learn something, you know, from which I can be drawn back to the true good. So nothing is wretched, but thinking makes it so. If I, if I approach, if I receive that wretched thing without gratitude, mm -hmm. that's what makes it wretched. But every lot is happy if, if born with equanimity, if, if, you know, received with equanimity, um, you know, with an even with an even keeled soul, with an even keeled spirit about it, right? Dad Gum, I'm glad I got to be on this reading. This is a good book. I mean, the yeah. whole so far. Yeah. I mean, book two is really, really good. Book but two. I'm, I'm guessing the whole of Constellation of Philosophy is also really, really good. Yeah. I'll share a blue and you can go wherever you want. But this one, she says, it seems as if you feel a lack of any blessing of your own inside you which is driving you to seek your blessings in things separate and external. Huh. Part of the stronger medicine. Is that when he's like, no, 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 I just want it. I just want fortune so that I can do virtuous things. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't even answer. This is in um, six, the prose of six, no, the prose of five still. But that was another one that just oh, caught okay. my eye, right? Yeah. That she's wanting yeah. to send him on the inside for the blessing. Yeah. 
it's not on the outside. Well, I have a, a blue from the next section that like, I think ties in with that one. Mm-hmm. In six, where she says, you cannot impose anything on a free mind and you cannot move from its state of inner tranquility, a mind at peace with itself and firmly founded on reason. So, uh, where's that? Oh, yeah. It's in the prose section of six, uh, not too far after the um, second the, paragraph for me. The song of five, basically. Yeah, it's like second or th- yeah, second paragraph down for us. It's when she's talking to it right before she talks about the tyrant uh, Nearchus. Yeah. Torturing uh, Zeno and Zeno bites off his tongue. It's like right before that. Um, what? Yeah, I was going to ask you all about that one. It's like when she says, you cannot impose anything on a free mind and you cannot move from its state of inner tranquility, a mind at peace with itself and firmly founded on reason. Do you do you agree that a mind needs to be firmly founded on reason, that that's what brings it tranquility and peace? Yeah, because she says right before that, she says the only the only the only way one man can exercise power over another is over his body and what is inferior to it, his possessions. So Mm -hmm. they can imprison, like you know, they can imprison you, they can kill you, they can take away your stuff. Right. But you cannot impose anything on a free mind, and you cannot move from its state of inner tranquility, a mind at peace with itself and firmly founded on reason. The tyrant Nearchus thought he would be able to torture the philosopher Zeno into betraying his fellow. conspirators in a plot against his person but Zeno bit off his tongue and threw it in the face of the enraged tyrant Nearchus had thought the tortures an occasion for barbarity but Zeno made them an opportunity for heroism I was just like yeah I mean to me that just goes to the heart of what we're trying to do with a liberal education right we talk about a liberal 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 (laughs) means free an education that frees man right and, and it doesn't mean you're free to do whatever you want doesn't mean you're nice. you're free from oppression doesn't mean you're free from from theft or imprisonment it means you're free to not be affected by any of those things because it can't touch it can't touch your mind and it can't touch your soul if they're fortified against against those things against circumstance against fortune and her wins. I don't know that I would have thought to bite off my own tongue and throw it in some man's face, but I really uh, like the visual now, and I like knowing I have that option. It's a pretty strong move if someone's trying to get you to confess something you don't want to confess. Right. Okay, I vaguely remember that section, but I cannot find it anywhere in my book. If you what look at the, the song Six. that ends the song that ends section five, mm-hmm. it should be within a page of that. After, like afterward, Matt. Okay, is section five the one the poem ends talking about Etna's fiery blaze? Yes, Ice of Diamonds. And then the next section starts yeah. talking about with with Etna. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, and then you're saying it's on that page. It's in that first part of that prose section. Ah, the prisoner bit off his tongue and threw it into the furious tyrant. Okay, mine doesn't name the person. That's why I oh. can't find it. My text doesn't name the guy. You don't actually, have Homer. You don't have Nearchus. It actually says in our footnote that Boethius does not give the name of the tyrant or the philosopher. Mm. Um, but then mm. it talks about where that's drawn from. Diogenes mm. Laternus. Okay, then where does it say about the control So right of the before body? he saw it, right before it says the tyrant thought he would be able to torture the philosopher, it's the line right before it. You cannot impose anything Two on sentences. a free mind. 
Ah, oh, I see. What rights can one exercise over another, save only as regards the body, and that which is lower than the body? Mm-hmm. Wilt thou bind with thy mandates the free spirit? Canst thou force from its due tranquility the mind that is from firmly composed by reason? Mm. Good stuff. I mean, that's another allusion to Plato, right? There's a whole section in the Republic where Socrates is talking about. Um, man, I think Hicks talks about it too, and Aristotle both. There's a lot of people that talk about this idea that that we confuse freedom with what our bodies are able to do. Right. But but true freedom exists within the mind, the soul, and that even when the body is enslaved or imprisoned, you can still be free within the soul, within the mind. Now, right. What if you're talking about that to the people who have been enslaved for generations? But yeah, I mean, there's something to it, even if there's problems with the argument. Well, and yeah. Yeah, if they're cut off from the ability to 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 cultivate the mind and the soul, then that makes it, and they don't have that. To, then they don't have that. But if you're, but if you're talking about also where the where the wisdom of the ancient pagans meets the 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 capital T truth of of Christ, this is all over Paul's letters, right? Like that, um, and 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 the New Testament in general, that the freedom in Christ doesn't is is going to come it's it's almost promised to come with worldly suffering with imprisonment and death and torture you know what i mean um right that's not what the freedom is the freedom is that your soul is free to praise god and your mind is free to 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 contemplate you know the eternal so this i mean lady philosophy is pulling those things from the ancients and from christianity and and just giving it to us with this, with this kind of um, look at Lady Fortune, which is mm. kind of fun. So good. Well, I know the two of you have more meetings today, so um, thanks so much for um, this. is fun. I'm glad. I'm glad someone. Um, I'm glad this made the best of suggestions from our from our listeners mm. to get to do early on because uh, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. So it's one of those ones I put off a yeah, lot of time. Too, this, is an, this is literally an overdue classic for me. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I've not ever read it, right? So this is, I mean, I've never read the whole thing. So this really is an overdue classic for me as well. Whereas, you know, Plato stuff, I'd read that. And, and the other one, Agamemnon, or Oedipal Cycle, I'd read. But this, this is, is a good one. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of books that when I, find, when I read them, I'm like, oh, I'm glad I finally got around to that one. And then occasionally there's a book that's I'm like, man, I really wish I had read that earlier in my life. Or why didn't yeah. anyone tell us about tell me about this earlier in my life? And this was this was certainly one of those for me last year, just reading it straight through, like without much even opportunity mm-hmm. for conversation, but just reading it. Yeah. And so this has been good for me already to kind of dig a little deeper with it. So I'm excited about what's coming up next. Yeah. Well, I mean, even as reading it, I was just thinking like, you know, Josh Gibbs' book, How to Be Unlucky. Yeah. Yeah, is you know him kind of describing the you know he, he constellation of philosophy is the spine that or the thread that kind of takes through that yeah. goes through that whole story. 
man, I could see why you'd want to teach this to high schoolers. Yeah. 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 Yes. I would definitely, you could definitely get me to argue with lots of schools about this should, this should have, this should have a place in their curriculum, even if it bumps other things yep. out. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, I will let you guys get to where you've got to go. Uh, thanks again for joining me, joining us. Thank all of you for, for joining us for this week's episode, for pulling the book down and dusting it off and opening up with us this episode of Overdue Classics. Uh, join us next week when we'll discuss book three. Um, you can send questions and comments to podcast at searchinstitute.org. Be sure to check out the new space on circle.so for all of our podcasts and to check out the other shows on the Searching Podcast Network. 